What's up, what's up? Well, good morning. Well, I'll say it's a, it's a huge privilege for me to be here with you. Uh, this means a lot to me uh, because 22, 22 years ago, I was sitting where you're sitting when I came to my first SMC. We, we called it a Christmas conference back in the day, and, and I had just gave my life to Christ uh, over Thanksgiving break, but unfortunately, I used my 21st birthday to, to justify going right back to doing all the things that I said I wasn't going to do anymore. And so by the time Christmas break rolled around, I was, I was really struggling in my faith. And one day, it hit me like a ton of bricks, and, and I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and it was like God himself was calling me out, reminding me that I was serious when I gave my life to him. And, and out of the blue, out of nowhere, I remembered how a guy from a, a group project in one of my classes randomly invited me to, to this thing called Christmas Conference and, and how it was some Christian thing. When, when he invited me, I, was, I wasn't the least bit interested, and I don't even know why he thought I would be interested to go to something like that. But that, that random invitation came to mind, and, and I found myself showing up to my first Christmas conference. And, and it was crazy because I went to that conference not really knowing anybody. I played football at the University of Tulsa. And so at that time, my, my football team, that was like my circle of friends. And there wasn't a single one of my teammates that was at SMC. I only casually knew like, like two people from the entire TU student group that was there. But, but God used SMC to change the trajectory of my life. Like the, the main stage talks and the breakouts. I, re, I remember going to one uh, breakout on relationships and just being blown away by what the presenters shared. And so much so that I called the, the girl that I was kind of dating at the time. And I say kind of because I had just told her that I wasn't trying to be her man and I was just trying to kick it. And uh, she wasn't that kind of girl. And so she was like, man, I'm through with this dude. And so she didn't have time to, to you know, for all my foolishness. But... As soon as I got out of that breakout session, I called her. I, you know, I called her. I was still at SMC. I couldn't even wait till I get back home. And I told her, it's like, now I know what I want in a wife. And you check all the boxes. And that dang near scared her away. She was just like, <laughs> I ain't trying to get married. But she gave me a chance. And we started officially dating after that. And this May, we'll be celebrating 20 years of marriage. Yeah. Like I said, SMC changed the trajectory of my life. And, and, and I know God is going to use this conference to change some of your trajectories. And, and I'm thankful that I get to play a small part of that. You know, for some, SMC will mark a huge turning point in your life and be the place where you decide to turn and trust Christ. Or you could be someone who got saved as a little kid or, or just even recently but God is going to use this week to stir up something in you to, to have a desire to go deeper. Or you can still be trying to, to make sense of it all and trying to figure out if you want to give your life to Christ. But no matter which category you fall under, this year's theme has forced you to deal with the fact that we all only have one life to live. We only get one crack at this thing. And I've been a pastor for almost 16 years now, and in all my time of ministry, I've never met anyone who wanted to waste their life. No, no one has uh, scheduled a counseling session with me and said, hey, Pastor P, I'm trying to figure out how to waste my life. Can you help me with that? No one has ever asked me that. But the sad reality 
is that I've seen far too many people prioritize the wrong things and end up wasting their lives. I came across this great uh, Francis Chan quote that says, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but a succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. It's like the last thing that I want is for anyone in this room to get 10, 20, 30 years down the road and to look in the rearview mirror of your life and realize that you didn't invest it in things that matter. And, and thankfully, God doesn't want that either. And, he, and he's made it clear throughout Scripture that he pours, his great out, he pours his grace out on us to keep us from wasting our lives. The, the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that when we understand God's grace in the gospel, we embrace his purpose for saving us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 gives us one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture that we're saved on the basis of God's grace. There's nothing we can do to deserve salvation. We bring nothing to the table and can never be good enough to earn his acceptance, his love, his kindness, his goodness to us. When, when writing to a group of Christians who came from a, a background of living life in the exact opposite way that God wanted them to live it, the Apostle Paul tells them this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And then it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Here Paul clearly states that their salvation isn't something that they earned or deserved because they worked for it, but it was a gift. Well, because um, gift giving is one of my wife's love language, giving and receiving gifts, Christmas in the Abode household is a way bigger deal than it would be if it's up to me. You know, my, my wife, I even told her, I was like, hey, you don't have to give me anything for Christmas. And I really meant it. It wasn't one of those tests to see if she really cared about me. I was like, I, I just don't want anything. But because gift giving is, is my wife Ronnie's love language, she, she couldn't help it. And because she knows that that's not my thing, she doesn't really expect me to get all excited about her gifts because she knows me. She, she knows that I'm too practical to get super excited about a gift that she bought with our money. You know, it's like, it's like I literally could have went and bought it myself if I wanted to, you know? And, and I get it, it's a thought that counts and, and all of that stuff. And so, you know, when I buy her a gift, she could do the same thing. She should go, could go buy it with her money, but because she cares about the thought, she wants to see that, oh, you thought about me, you considered me. She does get super excited about those gifts. It could be the cheapest gift, but as long as it's a thoughtful gift, she gets excited. But I'll say this, the kind of gift that would really get me excited is a gift that I could never afford to get on my own. A gift that's so completely out of reach for me that it's just like, why even think about it? Because it just ain't going to happen. I ain't going to lie. A gift like that, I would get excited about that. And that's the kind of gift that Paul is talking about here, a gift that is completely out of reach for us. But I feel like we need to go back to verse 1 to really appreciate just how out of reach the gift of salvation really is. So let's jump back to verse 1 real quick where Paul reminds us where we all came from. And he says, And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the, of the air, power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I love a good zombie movie. And, and that's the picture that comes to mind when I read these verses. Spiritually, 
Every one of us is the walking dead. Now, notice how Paul includes himself when he says we in verse 3. He says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're all like lemmings following the crowd and and marching to the beat of the devil's drum. And, And that's who he's referring to when he says the prince of the power of the air. And I know that we're all way too sophisticated to actually believe in the devil anymore. But my favorite line from the movie, The Usual Suspects, is when Verbal Kent says that the greatest trick the devil pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. It's like we, we're all going to have to wrestle with what we think about Scripture. And if we really believe that is the inspired word of God like it claims to be. Personally, I'm convinced that God used human authors using their unique personalities and experiences with him to accurately record his message for all of humanity. And because of that, I take the reality of the devil seriously. In his fantastic book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer says that the devil's strategy is to use deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that have been normalized in a sinful society. And I should have threw that quote up on the screen, and so I'm going to say it again. He says that the devil uses deceptive ideas, he uses lies that play to disordered desires that have been normalized in a sinful society. That basically summarizes these verses. And one of the things that almost all zombie movies have in common is that the zombies are controlled by this insatiable desire to eat people. And thankfully, our desire isn't to eat people, but but from the time that we were kids, we're told to follow our hearts, be, be true to yourself. In other words, let your desires lead the way. And that's what zombies do. And we were born this way. Paul says that we were by nature children of wrath. That's how bad it was. And, and, and as I was thinking of all the zombie movies that I've ever seen, I couldn't really think of any where they, where they actually came up with a cure to save the zombies. I can only think of one, I Am Legend with Will Smith, you know? That's the only one I could think of. There might be one or two other ones you're gonna have to fact check me on that. But there definitely aren't any movies where the zombies actually come up with the cure themselves. It's like, how can they? You know, they're mindless zombies being led around by their desires to eat people. They're hopeless. And spiritually, that's us. But thankfully, that's not the end of our movie. Because Paul goes on to say, starting in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's like even though we were dead and deserved nothing but God's wrath, he made us alive with Christ because of his great love for us. When you give your life to Christ, you're no longer a zombie. God changes your heart, and you're no longer the walking dead. And I love how in verse 7 it says that God wants to spend the rest of eternity showing those who give their lives to Christ the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. He's going to spend the rest of time showing believers how good he is. And as Christ followers, we'll never be able to fully wrap our minds around that. It's immeasurable. That's how valuable this gift is. We get to have a relationship with God and get to experience his goodness forever. And so now when you get to verses 8 through 9, now that you know how bad and hopeless the situation is apart from Christ, 
Those verses hit a little different, don't they? It's a gift. And oh, what a gift it is. But, but if we stop at verse 9, we're in danger of making a huge mistake. And we'll miss God's purpose for giving believers this amazing gift that's accepted through faith. And so verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So verse 10 explains why God saves us by grace through faith. We're his workmanship. And the Greek word here is poema. We get the Greek word poem from this word. We're God's work of art, his masterpiece. So when God created humanity, we were his crown jewel. We were the only beings in all of creation that were created in his image, created to enjoy a loving relationship with him and, and each other and to represent him in the world. This is why Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love God with everything we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is literally why we were created. God created us to love him and to love people. But that got ruined when Adam and Eve fell for the devil's original deceptive idea. And it's still around today that God isn't good and that God can't be trusted. It's like when we fell for that, when they fell for that, and did the one thing that God told them not to do, God's work of art got vandalized by sin. Theologians say that at the fall, the image of God was defaced, but not erased. So we're still his masterpiece. Even after the fall, scripture says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. God has specifically and intentionally created you to love him and to love people in ways that only you can. But none of us are able to do that apart from Christ. None of us can live the lives that he created us to live. We're zombies, remember? Led, led, led by our own selfish desires as we buy into one deceptive idea after another. But according to verse 10, in Christ, God goes to work in us. It says that we're created in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that in Christ, we're a new creation. God goes to work in our lives, molding and shaping and transforming us so that we can live the lives that he created us to live, so that we could truly be that work of art. When scripture talks about a person's walk, it talks about their way of life, how their life is characterized. And so God created us to have a way of life that's characterized by good works, lives characterized by joyful obedience to him and sacrificial love to those around us. So when we put it all together, we see that we're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works. And so verse 10 makes it clear that our salvation, our relationship with God was always meant to be lived outward. And, and, and honestly, it breaks my heart to see so many professed Christians miss this. We'll, we'll embrace the, the inward aspect of our faith and pursue holiness and growth. And, and we'll go all in for the upward aspect of our faith. And we'll praise and worship him. That would be like our favorite time of the week, to just sing God's praises and to worship him. And all those are great things. But then we'll do all of that and can completely ignore the outward aspect of our faith. And, and, and we really need all three, the inward, upward, and outward, to experience the fullness of God's goodness in our lives. I believe that this, is, this lack of living outward is why so many Christians never experience the abundant life that Jesus came to bring. And I'm not talking about having a bunch of stuff, but a quality of life that, like, no matter what happens, God never ceases to amaze you with how good he is. 
through the ups and the downs, the, the good and the bads, you're able to have a deep conviction that God is with you and that God is for you. And, and you won't see that without living a life of outward good works. And, and we see a great illustration of this in nature when you look at the, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. These are two seas that are a little under 90 miles apart. Both of them are fed by the Jordan River, except for the Sea of Galilee is teeming with life. And the Dead Sea, well, it's called the Dead Sea for a reason because nothing lives in it. And so the question is like, why is that? And so what happens is the Jordan River feeds the Sea of Galilee from the north and it flows out through the south. So you have water coming in and water flowing out. Well, the Dead Sea is literally the lowest point on earth. And so it has the Jordan River comes in, but nothing flows out. The only way the water gets out is through evaporation, leaving more and more salt behind and more and more minerals, so much so that nothing can live in it. There's no life. And so when we fail to see that God works in our lives so that we can live outward, so that we can live the lives that he created us to live, but instead we think that he does that only for our benefit, there won't be any life. And, and we will never see how good he really is. We, we get to see his goodness as we walk in obedience to him and become convinced that his ways are just better. And we get to see his goodness as we lovingly pour our lives out for others. And this is why I went to Kaleo. I remember watching a promo video in one of these main sessions and hearing about investing my nine weeks of my summer in this discipleship program in, in Summit County, Colorado, would help me grow in my faith and make me, you know, help me to make a difference on my campus. And I was all over that when I heard that. And I wouldn't have put it, I wouldn't have described it in these terms at the time, but I really wanted to live the kind of life that I was created for. And I saw Kaleo as a way to help me get there. I embrace God's purpose for saving me. And here's a picture of the TU group back in uh, 2000 at our Kaleo. Uh, you know, I was pretty fashionable back then, but you know. And, and as I said earlier, going to SMC changed the trajectory of my life. Well, going to Kaleo, it enabled me to run so much faster down that new path than I would have ran otherwise. You know, I still use some of the skills and the tools that I learned back then to this day. Now I learned how to study God's word and, and also how to write and lead my own Bible studies. And when I got back to campus, that's exactly what I did. I started a Bible study with some of my teammates on, on the TU football team. That summer I learned how to share my faith, which is huge because when it comes down to it, one of the most loving things that you can do for someone is tell them about God's love for them and the gospel. And it was cool to see how God actually got to use me that summer in Colorado. And I don't know if they still do it this way, but back then you had to get a full-time job when you were at Kaleo. And finding work that summer was rough. I ended up like with two part-time jobs, and one of them was working at a women's clothing store. And so, you know, here I am, this big college football player working at a women's clothing store. And so needless to say, they didn't have me up front working the cash register much, you know. Most of my time was spent in the back, you know, taking deliveries and getting the merchandise ready to, to put on the floor. But I remember one day, 
I just was able to strike up this conversation with the delivery truck guy. And we got into this really good conversation. And one thing led to, the other, to another. And the next thing I know, I'm sharing the gospel with this dude. I don't even know how it happened. We just started talking about the gospel. And then my manager comes up. And so now I'm a little afraid I'm going to get in trouble. But it's like, I've already started talking. So let me just go all in. So I'm sharing the gospel. And what's crazy is that she started sharing the gospel with me. And so we had this great conversation with this dude. And he's just, he's like, man, I... Just God could never accept somebody like me. And he just left it at that. Well, the next summer, I go back to Kaleo. And and even though it was a women's clothing store, it was a pretty cool gig. So I go back and work there again. (laughs) And when I get there, the manager's like, hey, do you remember that truck driver that you shared the gospel with? Well, he came back and he gave his life to Christ. And he wrote this beautiful poem about that experience. And so going to Kaleo wasn't just a nine-week experience to get prepared to walk in those good works that God created me for. It was an opportunity for me to actually get to walk in those good works. And so you guys have been presented with a great opportunity to invest your summer to start to walk in those good works that God has created you for. And so, yes, when we understand God's grace in the gospel, we embrace his purpose for saving us. But I want to be clear that when I say understand, I'm talking about more than just a, you know, just a mere head knowledge. I'm talking about understanding this at the heart level. I'm talking about understanding in a way that God really changes you. Because the second thing that I really want us to see is that when we understand God's grace in the gospel, we develop a passion for making a difference. You know, Titus 2, 11 through 14 is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture when it comes to the impact that the gospel has on our lives. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And this is a great passage because we see not only God's heart to make salvation available to all, but we see the inward, upward, and outward aspects of the Christian life. You know, God's grace trains us to turn our backs on the sin and to live godly lives. That's that inward piece. As we wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is one of the clearest declarations in the New Testament that Jesus was more than just a man. He was God in the flesh. And that's why we worship him. And so that's the upward. And then it says that he sacrificed himself so that he could redeem us. And that's scripture's way of saying to to set us free from something. And in the Old Testament, God redeemed redeemed or set the people of Israel free from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. But here it says that Christ died to set everyone who trusts and follows him free from sin. And, And in our culture... We tend to think of freedom as being free to do whatever we want. But but the New Testament authors thought of freedom as being set free to live the lives that we were created to live. And and verse 14 says that Jesus died to set us free so that we could be zealous for good works. And zealous is one of those words that no one uses anymore. But according to the dictionary, to be zealous is to be filled with a strong feeling of interest and enthusiasm that makes someone very eager or determined to do something, to do something. In other words, Jesus died that you would have a passionate determination to do good. 
And that passion comes from experiencing freedom. You know, when you're able to live free and you know that it was only because of God's grace in your life, you want to see others experience that freedom. Harriet Tubman had this kind of passion when it came to slavery here in the U.S. She knew what it was like to be a slave. And after experiencing freedom, she was passionately determined to see others experience that same freedom. In her book, The Moses of Her People, Sarah Bradford quoted Harriet Tubman as saying, I have heard their groans and sighs and seen their tears, and I would give every drop of blood in my veins to free them. And I can relate to that. You know, I grew up in uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma. You know, go Pokes, right? Yeah, I didn't think that would go well here. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, you know even, even though Stillwater is a nice college town, it, it has its pockets of poverty. And that's where I grew up, where my widowed grandmother did the best she could to raise my brother and me. And one thing she did is, is she kept us in church. And because I grew up going to church, I thought everything with God and me was good. And it wasn't until I got to TU and one of my teammates shared the Romans 6:23 bridge illustration with me that I finally realized that growing up in the church wasn't good enough and that Jesus wanted me to trust him as Lord and Savior. And it took about a semester of me really wrestling with that before I crossed over the line of commitment to trust and follow him. And he changed my life. I got to walk in that freedom. And then I almost immediately started to think of all my friends and teammates who had the same kind of background that I had. Because this was back in the day that if you were black in America, you grew up going to church. And so, God gave me and, and, and my wife, well, she wasn't my wife then, but gave me and Ronnie a passion to want to make a difference in our friends' lives. And so we spent the last two years of college trying to do that. Ronnie started a Bible study with some of her friends. I started a couple of Bible studies with some of my teammates. I, I was still in college when the, the first Matrix came out. And, and that movie changed the game for action movies. As far as I'm concerned, the first Matrix is hands down the best one. But I even led a Bible study using the matrix to point guys to God's word and, and to get to have some good gospel conversations with folks. And, and that same passion to make a difference drove me to become a pastor and to help start a church that would make a difference in the same kind of community that I grew up in. It's like after seeing how Christ changed my life, I became convinced that a real relationship with him and not just going to church was the, was the key to breaking the seemingly endless cycle of poverty and brokenness that ravages under-resourced communities. And so in 2006, I was a part of the team that planted Crossover Bible Church in North Tulsa. I became the lead pastor in 2009, and one of the big lessons that I learned through that experience is that that old saying that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, it's true. You know, I believed it at the individual level, but I also became convinced of it at the organizational level. And so in 2012, we started a separate nonprofit organization called Crossover Community Impact as our effort to show North Tulsa how much we care. And we started with one second grade youth football team and then expanded that into year-round youth sports. And then we started an after-school program and summer day camp for elementary age kids that hired high schoolers to work as the tutors. You know, we opened up a, a medical clinic that now has over 7,000 patient visits a year. And then we started building and remodeling homes to help people move into the community and, and to become first-time homeowners. 
And then we started a, a, a tuition-free, all-boy private middle and high school to give young men in our community access to a great education and, and to have the opportunity to model and teach them about the kind of men that God created them to be. You know, we'll have our first graduating class in uh, 2023. And we just started an all-girls school this year with sixth grade. And all of this came from our team's passion to make a difference in the lives of people in our community. And one of the things that we say at Crossover is that God does the heavy lifting. We're, we're relatively a small church, but we've seen God open doors and provide resources, the resources that we needed to do things in our community that our church, a church our size really has no business trying to do. But it's God leveraging the passion that he's given us to make a tangible difference in the areas of youth, sports, education, healthcare, housing, for the sake of seeing people in our community get to walk in freedom as they give their lives to Christ. It's like when you understand God's grace in the gospel at the heart level and experience his power and work in your life, you develop a passion to make a difference. That's how amazing God's grace is. When we understand it, it causes us to embrace his purpose for saving us and causes us to develop a passion to make a difference. And when we understand God's grace, we live lives that impact others' perception of him. Now, I would say that Really, the first time that it dawned on me that my relationship with God was meant to be lived outward in a way that people would notice was when I read Matthew 5, 16 for the first time. It's at the beginning of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount where he teaches his disciples, his followers, about what life in his kingdom is supposed to look like. And he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That was the first time that I realized that how I lived my life as a Christ follower impacted how others saw God. You may have heard the saying that perception is reality. The Oxford Dictionary defines perception as a way of regarding, understanding, or interpreting something, a mental impression. And so when someone says that perception is reality, they're saying that how someone regards something or understands it is how it really is as far as that person is concerned. But the simple truth is that perception isn't reality. Because see, reality is defined as the state of things as they actually exist. And so that's, a, that's regardless of how they're perceived. And so when we think of the reality of who God is and the fact that so many people's perception of him is off. Now, like I said earlier, one of the devil's deceptive ideas is that God isn't good and that he can't be trusted. And that idea has impacted so many people's perception of God. But when we give our lives to Jesus, we represent him in the world. And when we choose to live outward for the sake of loving and reaching the world around us, people will see our God, our good works, and have a perception of him that's closer to who he really is. And I will say this, as, in as intimidating as it might be to think about going back to your campus and going all in for God and holding it down for him and, and boldly representing him back at your sorority or on your dorm floor or among your teammates or, or even in your multicultural community, it'll never get easier than now to start living outward. You can tell yourself that you'll, you'll start doing it after college, but it, it, it won't happen because then you'll be focused on getting your career off to a great start. 
And once you get your career settled, you, you'll then, you know, start trying to find that soulmate if you haven't found them already. And then it gets even harder because now you got the kids and, and the house and the cars and the pets and, and everything else that comes with living the American dream. All of that will get in the way and you can forget about it. But if you start sacrificially loving people now and telling them about God's love through Christ now, you'll have an outward focus in life that will even impact all that other stuff. You know, we had this couple at our church who, before they even got married, they bought a 12-passenger van so that they could give high school kids rides to this great um, youth outreach ministry each week. And the group of kids that they were connected to, those are the first kids that we hired to work as tutors in our after-school program. And even though that they, they've gotten married and are on baby number two now, they haven't lost that outward focus. He even went back to law school so he can come back and help us start a legal arm to the work of the, the stuff we're doing in our community. And then our, the executive director of our nonprofit, he got exposed to this when he was in high school. And, he's, and he hasn't looked back since, and he's just been living outward. And now his oldest child, his, his oldest daughter is about to go into college. And since that's all she knows, seeing mom and dad live outward, seeing mom and dad reaching and discipling folks, she's already doing that too as an 18-year-old. It's like when you start to live outward and it's already on your radar, it'll protect you from just being inward focused and looking and, and, and really wasting your life. But, but as we're thinking of this idea, though, of impacting people's perception of God by letting our light shine through good works, I guess the question is, how do we know our perception is closer to reality? And, and that's a fair question. It's like one of the major themes that we see in Scripture especially in the New Testament, is this contrast between light and darkness. And when it comes to, to, to darkness, when you're in it, it's impossible to perceive God accurately. And in John 12, 35, Jesus says that those who are in darkness don't even know where they're going. And I got to experience this a little with one of my cars. Um, Ronnie and I, we, we were down to one car, and, and her dad hooked us up with a 1996 Crown Victoria. You know, not the coolest car in the world, but, you know, it was free. And you can't beat free. And there's really only one thing wrong with the car. And it was that whenever you turned on the headlights, all the lights on the dashboard went out. And so when I'm driving at night and I have to turn on the headlights, the, the dashboard's black. And I can't see anything. I can't tell how fast I'm going. I got to just guess. I don't, I don't know how much gas I have. I just like, well, I think I got enough gas to get where I'm going. But that's how we are when we live life in the darkness. It's like we don't know where we're going. We don't know how fast we're going. And we just got to assume that we have enough in the tank to get to where we're going. And so it makes sense that it's impossible for anyone to have an accurate perception of who God is when you're in the dark. But that's why Jesus came. That's why the eternal Son of God took on flesh and became one of us. He, he was the light that we needed to be able to see who God really was. And in John's gospel, he hits on this theme a lot. John 1 says that he is the true light who gives light to everyone. John 3, he says that, he, it says that he's the light that comes into the world. John 8, Jesus comes straight out and says himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And, and in John 9, 5, he says, I am the light of the world. 
And it's in Jesus that we see the perfect representation of who the Father is. So much so that he told his disciples that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And when we look at his life, we see God's truth, God's holiness, God's compassion, God's mercy, God's goodness. Jesus demonstrated all of that. But instead of worshiping him, they killed him. And what's interesting, according to Matthew's gospel, was while Jesus was dying on the cross, darkness came over the land. He warned them in John 12, 35 that they wouldn't always have the light with them. And so now the world is in darkness again. And if somebody can hit all the lights for me. But this was all a part of God's plan. Jesus died for us so that his light could shine in us and through us. That's why he told his disciples in Matthew 4.15 that you are the light of the world. They just didn't know how that was going to happen. It's like one of the kids' songs that we used to sing in church growing up was called This Little Light of Mine. It was a simple song that said, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Oh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Simple song, simple kid's song, but it has some profound biblical truth. When you give your life to Jesus, you get a light that you get to let shine wherever you are. And it's a little light. You know, it's not enough to brighten this whole room, but it's not as dark as it was. And one of the reasons that God brought you here to SMC is because he wants you to let your light shine back on campus. Now, I was told that uh, there's some first-timers here at SMC this year. And so if this is your first time at SMC, go ahead and let your light shine. Now, pick out your phone and let your light shine. Oh, wow. I love it, all the first-timers. Dang, everybody's a first-timer. <laughs> I thought it was only a few of y'all, but no, that's great. That's great. And see, when you let your light shine, notice how the people around you can see a little better too. When you let your light shine, when you walk in obedience to God and sacrificially love the people around you, it impacts them, and God will give you the opportunity to talk to them about him. And as you do that, the people around you will see God's goodness and his mercy through your life, and they'll want a relationship with him too. And so if you're next to someone whose light is shining, Go ahead and, and let your light shine. That should be dang near everybody. <laughs> and so here's the deal. The more lights we have shining, the more people get to see who our God really is. The more their perception of him will change. And even though we have all these lights on, it, it, there's still darkness. There's still darkness. We get, we get to see a glimpse of who God is, but it's still in the midst of the darkness. But really the most beautiful thing about the gospel is that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, there will be no darkness. And so if you can hit those lights. According to Revelation 21, God's glory is going to shine so bright that we won't need the moon, 
We won't need the sun. We won't need any of that because we'll get to see him in the fullness of his glory. And we'll get to spend the rest of time seeing just how good he is. And when we understand how amazing God's grace is, it'll lead us to embrace his purpose for saving us and to develop a passion for making a difference in, in, in the lives of the folks around us. And it'll lead us to live lives that impact people's perception of him. And so really my prayer for, for your generation is that you'll lead the way when it comes to really rejecting this me-centered Christianity that's all about what God can do for you in order to live a life characterized by loving God and, and loving people. And real quick, some, some practical takeaways. It's like pursue holiness. Walk in obedience to him. Find some friends that will help you do that. And never forget that it's only by his grace that you're able to walk in obedience to him. And, and that will keep you from becoming a jerk about it. But then also lovingly serve the people that you're trying to impact with the gospel. It's true that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I wish I would have did a way better job of this in college. But develop the skill of listening well. Listen to understand before you try to be understood. And when you understand people, you'll be able to see how you can serve them in ways that they'll know that you really care. And then I say, learn how to share your faith. I know that it can be awkward and scary. I still struggle with it at times, but I think we overcomplicate it. You know, I love the story in John 9 where Jesus heals a man born blind. And the Jewish leaders are questioning the man and they accuse Jesus of being a sinner. And I love how the guy responds and he says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The dude just simply told his story. So just tell your story. Let people know how God is at work in your life. And if you have a consistent walk with the Lord and love the people around you well and really listen to them and hear their stories, they're going to want to hear your stories. But beyond telling your story, if you don't, know, if you don't feel confident that you know how to explain the gospel, Find someone who knows how to explain it and ask them to teach you how. And I know this can be scary. And you're worried about, like, how this might affect your reputation. But, but when you experience God's grace, pleasing him matters more to you than pleasing people. But if you're being outward with your faith, people will see the difference. They'll see a difference. And they'll want to know why. And, yes, you know, some folks might be turned off by that. You know, my wife went through a pretty painful experience in college where her friends did some old mean girl stuff. And, you know, she sat down at their table in the cafeteria and they got up and left as soon as she sat down. And that, and that was painful for her. But they, but they saw her walk and, and they saw her, her good works. And they eventually got drawn to that. They even joined a, a, one of the Bible studies that she was in. And then years down the road, one of them started going, you know, after we started the church, one of them started coming to Crossover. And then one of them who lives here in KC asked my wife to be her daughter's godmother. Prayerfully, also consider starting a Bible study back on your campus. 
But I'll tell you this, if you invest your life and refuse to waste it 10, 20, 30 years from now, you'll look in the rearview mirror of your life and you'll get to see how God has worked in your life, but also how God has worked through your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. That even though we, we don't deserve your love, we don't deserve your kindness, we don't deserve your mercy, we, we, were, we, we were zombies, ignoring you, doing our own thing. But because of your great love for us, you sent your son to die, to pay the price that none of us could pay so that we could be brought back into your family. And Father, I pray that as we think about the gospel, that that amazing gift, that the value of that gift would rock us to the core. And then we would embrace that purpose and we would go all in and pour our lives out doing good. And I pray, Father, that you would also stir within the folks in this room that every single one of these students, that you would give them a passion to make a difference. And give them eyes to see just the path that you want them to go down and how they can use their unique gifts and talents to make a difference for your glory. And the Father, I pray you give them boldness as they go back to campus and they would let their light shine so that people can see how good you are and that you would use them as your instruments to draw their friends to yourself. And so, God, we love you and we thank you for how good you are. And it's in your son's name we pray by the Spirit. Amen.